This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3309 for Thursday, the 8th of April 2021. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws S0127 The Big Uncertainties in Life and Beyond. It is hosted by Monochromic and is about 57 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is the two chaps discuss uncertainties and beyond in this episode on probabilistic data structure. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Linux In-Laws. Season 1, Episode... I can't even remember, Martin. What episode is it? Episode where Jitsi vaguely works. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe it's Episode 40-something. <laughs> Which is, of course, a segue to today's subject, namely probabilistic data structures. And for, <laughs> yes, and for this subject, we have no other than our beloved Elena. You probably remember her from... The uh, peasant role, peasant girl role, sorry, back in the Halloween special of something called Linux In-Laws. If you haven't listened to it, dear listenership, please go back. You'll find the link on the, on the, on the website. It, an episode not hey, to be missed, apparently, I understand. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when Elena is not working as a voice double, she's actually working in, in, at a company called Redis Labs. But maybe Olga slash Elena, why don't you introduce yourself properly? <laughs> Uh, well, you already know Olga, so I'm just gonna uh, summon my Elena persona. <laughs> Please do, yes. Okay. Any else we should be aware of here? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the, that's that's uh, that's me. My Elena persona is pretty uh, pretty stable. 
uh, although I have different roles. Um, well, I have the role of my professional role, of course. I have a role of a mom. I have a role of a whatever friend. Uh, but in this context, like, let's talk about my the professional Elena. So I work for Redis Labs as a, a technical enablement. Oh no, sorry. Now senior technical enablement architect. Um, well done, by the way. Before I forget this. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Technical enablement architect uh, basically means um, we help the technical field, everyone working, uh, everyone in the field in technical roles, uh, to first of all get up to speed with the system when the with, with all our architecture when they join the company, and then also maintain their knowledge fresh by releasing new trainings about um, all different technical uh, aspects of our system. Um, so that's what I do professionally. Outside of that, um, I think that's really close to my heart is um, you know, the women in tech question. But I'm personally, I'm more of the type of women who, instead of going on Twitter and complaining about what someone did, I like to roll up my sleeves and get some uh, work done and uh, do some coding or just become a, bet a better engineer uh, in order to be a stronger woman in tech, a uh, woman in technology. So uh, I had done some work previously on that field. And a while ago, I was uh, invited from the Women in Tech uh, Global Organization uh, to be to be the global uh, program, uh, global education program director. So now we're working on that. We have some partnerships with uh, Cisco, uh, Microsoft, and we're going to be doing some some uh, free courses uh, for women and uh, people who identify uh, as, as female or minority in technology. Wow. So yeah, coding. That's and impressive. <laughs> That's my thing. <clears throat> Excellent. Okay. For disclosure, people, uh, our first, I really met Elena, I think it was in November, December 2019 in London, when you gave a presentation yeah. on something called probabilistic data structures for a NoSQL, for an in-memory NoSQL database called Redis. Yes. And this would be today's subject as in what are really probabilistic data structures and why are they important? Not just in Redis context, but generally speaking. But before we go into these technical details, maybe it's worth explaining what Redis is in, a, in, a, in an in-memory NoSQL context, given the fact that two-thirds of today's speakers on this podcast will still work for Redis. Uh, one defected quite some time ago. <laughs> so let's do this jointly. Redis is about 10 years old. It's a, a it, it, it has the spot, I think it has the seventh, rank on a website called DB Engines, if I'm not completely mistaken. And if a Stack Overflow is anything to go by, it's the most loved database for, I think, at least four years in a row as in terms of voted for. The main differentiation, it's probably the best term, what I'm looking for, is actually that in contrast to other databases, Redis does it all in main memory in terms of it doesn't, it, yes, it supports persistence, but it's uh, the main focus of, of the processing of data is actually doing this in main memory and hence this kind of playground of real time performance, but uh, why should I do all the explaining? Um, Elena, Martin, feel free to chime in. Well, you started uh, really well. Uh, Redis is um, very fast. It's very loved by developers. And uh, I can talk about my 
myself, at least one of the, the things I love to, that made me fall in love in, in Redis even before I, I knew about Redis Labs or before before I, I joined Redis Labs was uh, the efficiency and the part that it doesn't necessarily stick to all of the academic dogma. It just uses many times it uses just some approximations to get things done uh, uh, and make them work very well in 99% of the cases for people. Okay. So uh, since this is a episode of probabilistic data structure, so even in Redis itself, we have a, a lot of approximations. Like if we talk about um, the LFU, LRU, the eviction policies in Redis, in Redis um, they use approximations too. Uh, and I, I kind of like that, uh, uh, that efficiency being, uh, small, very small mem memory footprint, very fast. Uh, it does, uh, uh, does things, uh, well and, uh, fast. Martin, anything yeah. to add? Yeah. I think the, the one thing I think for, for people not familiar, so familiar with Redis is that it's basically a bunch of data structures that you use for different purposes, right? Which, um, uh, as opposed to your relational database, which has tables and those kind of structures, it's a bunch of different data structures which are very close to programming paradigms um, instead. So it's more of a builder's type of piece of technology, right? Hmm. Interesting observation there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> bunch of Legos for us to play with. Lego, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a very, yeah, that's that's actually very good, to, uh, very good image there. Okay, but. Enough about Redis details. Elena, what exactly are probabilistic data structures and why are they so important? Okay, so what exactly are probabilistic data structure? Um, uh, it's, it's a group of data structures that give a, a reasonable approximation of an answer, but using just the fraction of the usual time and uh, uh, memory that the, um, the deterministic data structure would use. So, uh, they use hash functions usually uh, to randomize and, and uh, compactly represent a set of items, and then collisions are ignored, which leads to usually leads to some margin of error. And before we go any, sorry, Alina, before we yeah. go any further, I think we cannot assume that everybody knows what hash functions are and what collisions are. So hash functions uh, is a way. Okay, how do? <laughs> So um, let's say you get a you get a value you do you you hash it I don't know how can how deep should we go into explaining how how hash functions work but you hash that value and many different um, uh, values can ha can have a similar can have a, the, the same hash and that would be a, then a, say a hash collision. I, I like to use this analogy. Well, if we have people that uh, don't know what's a, uh, what's a hash function, then I like to use this analogy. Um, if the, the object that we have is, um, let's say, the, the real-life object, a hash of that is its shadow. Okay, so the shadow of that object would be its hash. It kind of represents, it kind of is a silhouette of what was there. You can kind of tell something about it, but you cannot know what is it. And many different objects, uh, uh, let's say a ball, someone's head, or a, a lamp can have the same shape of a, a shadow. But in nice fact, there are different yes. objects. Very much so. I, I like the I like the I like the image I like the comparison there. That's that's I like the, I like the analogy. Let's put it this way. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, 
So yeah, so in probabilistic data structures, you use that kind of, you represent the elements with their uh, shadows, basically. Now, um, the by, by the way, here... before I forget, a very practical uses of hashes are actually if you log into a Linux slash Unix system, because the passwords stored in etc passwd or in etc shadow are actually salted hashes. I won't go into the technical details, but this is the primary touch point if you use a Linux-based system. When you log in, tap in your password. The password is not stored in clear text in ETC passwd or in ETC shadow, but rather as a hash. Okay. So no, the way no, nothing to do with the probabilistic data structures here. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, you don't. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. <laughs> so <laughs> let, let's cut this. Let's cut, yes. <laughs> let's let's cut this short. And this is just another application of a hash. So um, the idea is basically you enter a password. This password is, is this password is then converted by a hash function to a hash, and then the hashes are compared. Should these hashes match, essentially? Exactly. Sorry, but I didn't. Yeah, back to you, Elena. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, but it's still it's still connected. Yeah, not uh, nothing to do with probabilistic data structures, but it's still they use a deterministic function. A deterministic hash function means that every time you run it uh, uh, with with the same input, it's going to give you the same result, the same output. Uh, so actually, I'm not sure if that is true for passwords. To be honest, yeah, depending, I guess, is, I guess, yes. depend on the system. Um, it, it should be at least. Uh, yes. But for for uh, PDS, uh, can I use PDS? Probably yeah, the data structure. Thank yeah. you. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, it is. Uh, it is definitely true and crucial to their functioning. Now, um, I mean, why would someone use uh, probabilistic data structures? You would ask. Okay. Well, why would I want to sacrifice uh, precision? Right. Uh, we are developers. We work, we, uh, we work in with exact thing. It's an exact science. I want to have my results always correct. But uh, there are cases where you would sacrifice some, uh, uh, precision, if, uh, some accuracy, if you can gain space or, or our time. So there is this thing called, uh, uh, uh this triangle, triangle. Uh, the triangle of space-time accuracy in data processing, where um, you have um, uh, space accuracy and time and component on the three edges of the of the triangle, and you can choose two. You cannot have three with the data structure. So it's either you're going to have uh, accuracy and uh, and uh, low memory, but then you sacrifice time, and you, so you don't get real-time results, or you have um, uh, space and time. In, in the case of probabilistic data structures, you save on space, space, you have um, uh, good time performance, but you sacrifice accuracy. You cannot have all three. This is also in the yeah. theorem. Exactly. This is also known as the Kolevska theorem, right? If I'm not completely mistaken. <laughs> No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But... Oh, maybe there was some Kolevska who lived long, long before me. <laughs> some mysterious. <laughs> there is uh, this mysterious people in the in the PDS uh, uh, world. But we can talk about that. The Bloom guy, one of the most famous uh, structures. Yes. Uh, Dr. Bloom, he's completely mysterious. You can't find anything about him online. You can not know photos. We don't know if he's still alive okay. or not. Is mysterious. Uh, yes, let, let's park this for about two and a half minutes before we go into the subject. But okay, uh, Martin, any any thoughts on on PDSs before we move on? Well, we're not moving off PDSs, are we? 
In terms of the principles and uh, stuff and whatever. The theory, that is. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very well put about the trade-offs, right? It's... um. It's it's a very different approach in terms of a you know if you look at it from different databases or different technologies you're effectively at storage time you compute a uh, a data structure rather than just storing all the the data as is and then uh, calculating a uh, a result out of those which of course. I mean, that goes especially for use cases where you quickly run into either time or, or space problems in terms of having to store terabytes, gigabytes, petabytes, exabytes of, of, of memory, where simply main memory, never mind secondary storage, doesn't measure up. Same goes for runtime. And this is where PDS is. If you are willing to trade in accuracy versus these kind of metrics really makes sense. Exactly. Exactly, and this is—it's uh, becoming even even more uh, relevant because nowadays we have the rise of big data, so we need uh, 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 to store a lot of data, but we also want it real time. And now, how can how can we do it? I, I have an idea. You, <laughs> you use a GPU database. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Anyway, let's not go there today. Okay, how about... <laughs> the uh, break already, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, Martin works at Britley, the GPU um, uh, database shop. Uh, Richard, if you're listening, the the email address is sponsor at <laughs> linuxinlaws.eu. <laughs> but Martin will fill you down the details. Like that okay, sorry. For, for, for you, that and offer. <laughs> okay, but enough of the co- end of commercial break. And please do continue. Um, so yeah, and also another use case is where you uh, is the exact the, the exact opposite. It's not about big data now, but you have very limited uh, uh, memory on some devices, like uh, routers or maybe some IoT devices. And you have a very, uh, very limited memory space, for so you cannot store uh, a bunch of data there. So you can compare uh, mm. things, let's say, if a member is present in a set, for example. So and and I guess for also for for some questions, you don't need the exact answer, right? You don't need to know exactly. if it was one million and five hundred twenty-three. You just care if it's a million or a hundred thousand. Right? That's, uh, that's exactly. kind of the, yeah. Exactly. We can, I mean, we, we can, if you want, we can already, uh, we can talk maybe, maybe about Bloom filters, which are one of the simpler ones, but uh, they're pretty cool and they have uh, some really nice use cases. So it becomes a little bit more obvious to the audience. What By all means. Excellent. And then just go right ahead. Yes. Okay. So uh, we can, uh, there are four main families of probabilistic data structures. Membership, cardinality, frequency, similarity. Um, membership it basically it uh, um, it it is uh, asking uh, so is this uh, member present in a set? That's all it does. Now, what would be um, and Bloom filter is one of the probabilistic data structures, maybe together with Cuckoo filters and then different variants of Bloom filters, um, and that are the most uh, prominent in this family. So. Uh, a Bloom filter can answer you a question uh, like, for example, uh, in the financial ver- vertical, 
has this user paid from this location before or is this um, uh, has this credit card been reported as stolen so imagine how many transactions are done in the world every day every minute every second with how many different uh, card numbers every one of those uh, uh, i'm assuming that <laughs> every one of uh, the, those transactions needs, needs to be checked if that card has actually been um, uh, reported as stolen. So if all of those um, things need to go to some main database, some relational database, first of all, if you want to imagine the size of that database where we stole all those um, credit cards, then that database has to be shared between different process payment processors in the world. It needs to be updated all the time. In, in real time, essentially, yes. right? Because you're in tracking transactions. Yes. And then you also, on top of that, you even have the problem of, of storing those. Uh, uh, so the problem of security, you need to actually store those credit card numbers so you can compare if this new credit card that just paid is a part of, the, of those numbers or not. So in this uh, specific use case, Bloom's filters are a perfect, perfect match because you can populate one Bloom filter by adding, you can have your list of uh, uh, of uh, all the cards that have been reported as stolen. You take them, hash them, put them in the Bloom filter. And now, every time someone wants to check if a uh, card number uh, is a part, uh, it, it has been stolen, it just uh, takes that that number, hashes it, and, com and compares it to what uh, what we have in the Bloom filter. The Bloom filter can give you two responses, yes or no. If it gives you the response no, it's, uh, that you can definitely trust that response. That means that that card has definitely not been stolen. If it gives you a response yes, it means that, okay, this might have been stolen, but, but maybe not. If we go back to the shadows analogy here, it can say, okay, well, uh, you are asking, okay, is this ball present in the set? And then the filter looks and finds a shadow that looks like ball and say, yeah, I see a shadow of a ball. I, I think it is. I think it is present, but actually it was not a ball. It was a, it was a lamp or it was or, someone's head. Or a head or something. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but it cannot find any shape that looks like a ball. It can definitely say, no, for sure there, there is no uh, balls in this, uh, in this set. So no false negatives. If you th throw throw a triangle at the set, it will definitely say sorry, uh, not present. Exactly, exactly. So in this case, uh, for this specific use case, when you are checking if a card has been stolen, the most valuable response to you is no, because in most of the cases, in most of the transactions that you are going to make, the response is going to be no, right? Okay. And. Just by knowing that for sure, if your Bloom filter answers no, that prevents you from having to go to the main database to check. So we save a lot of load on the main, some main uh, database somewhere, or at least some relational I mean, database. Another use case would be Netflix, right? Uh, uh, Netflix. Uh, Netflix, it's one of these hipster Netflix. video networks, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Netflix uses caches all over the place, funny enough. And if I understand this correctly, essentially what Netflix does in that particular context, they saw chunks of, of video information in local caches. So if 
an endpoint like a mobile device or a browser basically goes back to the middle tier asking, hey, I need this chunk of video. Is it present in your cache? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is basically apply a bloom filter. And if it's not present, you have, you just, you simply go upstream and get it. But otherwise you can basically directly it stream it from the cache. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a question, Elena. How, how would that uh, lookup compare to say uh, an index lookup on a Radix tree in terms of time cost? Uh, it's all one, if I remember correctly. Because you just have to compute the hash function, right? Exactly, because because it doesn't depend on on uh, on anything. You just need to compute exactly the hash function, and uh, not just that, the memory needed to store uh, all of um, uh, to to store uh, the Bloom filter versus all of the cards that have been stolen uh, in a, in a full a string or, or a number or whatever it is sure, uh, sure. is is uh, very big and imagine then if you also need this this then propagates even further because uh, your full uh, data structure containing all of the stolen cards if it's uh, two megabytes or 200 gigabytes and you need to sync them that between uh, regions so everyone can have a good latency it makes it really does make a, a huge difference Right. Makes sense. Makes sense, Martin. Yes, of course. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, it's a lot of stolen cards, but hey. Martin apparently is pointing the possibility of going into credit card fraud wholesale. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Martin. Keep it going. Got to know the variables here. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, this is proprietary. I'm afraid. <laughs> Okay, very, very interesting and useful information there, and especially with regards to use case, because fraud detection is becoming much more of a problem than, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago because of the rapid move into online business, never mind Heineken, Carlsberg, or what, what, what is the other third beer there? Corona, sorry, yes, Corona or not. So, so more and more people are buying stuff online, and needless to say, most of the time they would use some sort of credit card, debit card payment method. And so fraud detection is more, is becoming more and more important as we speak at this very point in time, because needless to say, if you're a merchant, if you're a credit card processing company, you want to make sure that you are not being ripped off goes without saying. Yes, exactly. And there, yeah, there are many other use cases. Uh, uh, mostly, I think it's the, it's the better fit when the, the meaningful uh, answer to your question is no. So whatever is going to prevent you from going, uh, if you get a yes from the Bloom filter, that's still okay. You just know that, okay, well, in this case, I'm going to go and have to ping the main database, whatever mm. that may means. But it just, but all those no's, uh, 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 all those no answers prevented you from you know, from uh, going to the main database all the time. Um, just curious, and get just you a much curious, higher latency, yeah. much better latency, of course. Yeah. Just curious, Elena, um, because it, it it the whole this whole thing rides on the hashing function. But what would be the typical probabilities? Let's put it this way, um, of your average. Uh, PDS implementation, let's put it this way, with regards to accuracy. As I said, it, I reckon at the end of the day, it depends on the implementation of the hashing function. But what is your experiencing? Uh, what is your experience uh, with regards to 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 the to the prob- probabilities coming back um, 
that you have experienced so far, if you can talk about this. If, yeah, of course. Uh, that's um, that should be totally configurable. Uh, everyone can implement their own uh, Bloom filter. That's that's really not a problem. The algorithm is out there. Uh, people can do it, and uh, the accuracy is going to uh, depend on the number of hash functions you're going to use, which is of course then going to uh, influence CPU usage, right? And the uh, the size of your Bloom filter. So the bigger the bit array. Uh, the more precise, uh, uh, the more the more accurate filter you have. The smaller the bit array. Yeah, we should probably explain why a bit array now comes in, in, into in, okay. into the context. A bit array is then the field, uh, the canvas on where on which we are projecting the shadows. If our canvas is a one by one meter and we are projecting twenty shadows on 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 that one by one meter. It's gonna get blurry, and after a while, you're not gonna be able to recognize anything. Everything is gonna look like everything. If you are projecting the same 20 uh, elements on a 10 by 10 canvas, they're gonna be much more spaced out, and you're gonna be able to recognize mm. them much more nicely. Okay. Yeah, I was just uh, uh, just uh, to uh, to make the point clear: the size of the bit array in this analogy is the size of the canvas. Okay. You alluded to the whole thing earlier on, but why are they called Bloom filters and why is Bloom that much of a mystery? For me, he's a, I don't know why he, cho why he chose or if he um, ever chose to be a mystery. For me, he's a mystery because I couldn't find anything about him on Google. <laughs> he's, he's the chap who invented essentially the, the algorithm behind this. Yeah. 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 I think in the seventies or something like that. Uh, first, it was used yeah. for a dictionary, uh, uh, actually, to check words against the dictionary. Yeah. But full Mr. Bloom. <laughs> full details, of course, including the quantum um, um, super um, imposition of, of the Bloom filter will, of course, be in the show notes. But do carry on, Elena. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. I don't have anything else about the mysterious uh, Howard, I think, Howard Bloom. Howard Bloom, okay. I, but I he, is, he's is he still alive or, or is he? I don't know. Nope, nobody don't knows, know. okay? Uh, when I was researching that last year or a year and a half ago, I, I couldn't find out anything. But he's so not Irish, is he? Yeah, but he's not Irish. <laughs> oh, he's not Irish, perchance, <laughs> is he? No, I'm just wondering, that's all. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe uh, even I, I don't know if I if I ever knew that actually I don't know if okay. I could um, on the off chance university he worked yeah on the off chance Mr Bloom if you're listening the <laughs> email address is feedback at littlesinlaws.eu please get in touch <laughs> so we can plan you in for an episode in uh, coming along in the future okay going back to the um, corresponding Redis implementation now. And the way I see it essentially is that it's uh, there are a couple of um, implementations of Bloom filters in Redis. Maybe you can elaborate on these. We have uh, we have one implementation of Bloom filters, although uh, we do have something uh, quite specific to us. Uh, um, I don't know if it's patented, but uh, one of the, uh, the people who worked um, Ariel and uh, Dr. Carlos Vaquero, who worked on that, uh, they re released, uh, released a paper. Uh, it's uh, scalable bloom filters. With these scalable bloom filters, um, you could just specify an error rate you want to, to keep. So, so you would say, okay, I, I want my error rate to always stay below this value. And then, um, as you add more elements to the bloom filter, 
it's gonna just scale up. It's gonna keep stacking filters one on top of the other. And uh, so it can keep your error rate uh, to what you requested. So that's pretty specific to, to um, okay. Redis Labs, um, to the Bloom, Redis Bloom uh, implementation. And, but just to go uh, one step back, uh, first of all, mm, the Redis Bloom module is, uh, is the module that, that, uh, uh, for, for Redis. Redis uh, implements a module, module API where anyone can go ahead and create a, a module in C and extend the data structures. Um, Elena, sorry, what's a module? Please be more specific exactly. so that people so understand. Module. It's a piece of code uh, uh, written in C that uses the Redis API, the Redis module API, and then you can use Redis basically, and you can also hijack mm -hmm. uh, even some commands that are sent to the Redis server. So you load the, the, your Redis server with your module, and you can get, um, you can implement your own data structures. So in Redis, uh, you have um, a few, you have strings, you have hashes, leads, you have uh, a few data structures. Uh, with the Redis module, you can implement your own. And in the case of Redis, the Redis Bloom module, uh, uh, we have uh, four new data structures that were implemented through that module. It's the Bloom filters, um, the, um, uh, the Cuckoo filter, which is also, which is similar to Bloom, but implemented quite different, implemented quite differently, let's say, but a similar use case. It's, uh, from the membership family. Uh, we have the count min sketch and the top K, uh, heavy keeper. Uh, those are the four data structures that we have. You mentioned that there were four, uh, the four different types have different purposes. So I think uh, so Bloom yes. filters are membership uh, orientated. What are the others for? Yes, uh, so cardinality, uh, that is another uh, uh, family. So cardinality is uh, to estimate the, card the cardinality of the set. So membership is to, uh, to determine if a, um, a member is present in a set. Now, for cardinality that determines the cardinality of a set. Uh, frequency, obviously, the frequency of, of elements in a stream, and similarity to uh, to determine how the, the grade of similarity between uh, between elements. When would you Sorry, use the other, the other ones? When would you, you use? Uh, have you some examples? Yeah. Okay, so for cardinality, uh, in the Redis Bloom module, we don't have anything for cardinality, but we have the hyperlog log, which is a native uh, Redis data structure. And um, we can talk a little bit about that because it's another super cool one. With the um, uh, hyperlog log, uh, in only 12K, 12 kilobytes of memory, um, you can, uh, uh, you can estimate cardinality of huge sets. Let's explain that with a use case. So uh, let's go with the YouTube video, for example. Okay, so in YouTube videos, uh, you have a number of views, right? Um, with these views, uh, how would that work conceptually? Well, uh, let's go with IP addresses or what, whatever kind of unique uh, user identifier we have. Maybe, maybe user ID, maybe some combination of some uh, uh, IP with uh, whatever um, identifier, browser, whatever, cookie or something. So you have any kind of unique user ID. And then every time that user ID uh, views a video, you need to decide if that uh, uh, user has viewed that video before. Okay. Yeah. 
So in order for you to be able to do that, you need to think, well, how can I know if uh, they viewed this video before, uh, unless I have a list of everyone who's ever viewed this video before. And then I have, I compare to that list, and then I know. The more viewers I have, the, the longer this list becomes. It then it, it becomes pretty much uh, unmaintainable uh, in years. Hmm. Um, what um, uh, what what happens with uh, with uh, the hyperlog log? Every time you have a new user coming, you get its ID. You just stick it in the hyperlog log data set, and then every time you query, you ask uh, you, you query that the uh, uh, data structure. You say, okay, how many unique elements do you have inside? And it's going to tell you. And no matter you can you can add uh, huge numbers at the moment. Unfortunately, I don't remember the the numbers. Um, the, uh, the still guarantee low errors. I think the margin of error was zero point one percent. But uh, it's going to tell you, okay, I've seen this many unique elements, and it's very interesting how it's implemented inside. But I think uh, I, I'm not sure I will be able to explain it very well uh, with just words and not uh, visual explanation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think this, but, this, this uh, I think we're going to need this for the um, the listeners to our podcast as well. Yeah, with, uh, the, the details, of course, will be in the show notes <laughs> to, keep, to keep track of all of them. There is a, actually, I, I do have a presentation I gave uh, on um, UbuntuCon where I explained, I have a few minutes explaining how the hyperlog log works internally. Maybe you can link that if, if someone's interested. Yes, uh, the details, of course, will be in the show notes, dear listeners. Okay, so that's uh, about the cardinality family, the frequency family. Yeah, uh, estimates uh, with what frequency some elements occurs in a set without having to store all the elements that have ever occurred in that set. And um, in uh, in the Redis domain, uh, we have the uh, the counting sketch and the top k, top k, the uh, in its heavy keeper variant. Um, that, that that work with that and the top k is the, the more performant one um uh, what it does is um okay you watch all the elements that that show up in some stream and you can uh, see what are the uh the elements that appear the most the top five top ten what are the elements that appear most and th this can be a nice uh use case for this can be um maybe uh in in gaming what are the key players with high score if it doesn't matter if it's uh, if it doesn't if you can sacrifice uh, some precision uh, and you so you have uh the flow is the incoming game score um and then you can even uh, store a separate uh, sorted set storing the top k users every time a user scores points it's added to the top k list uh or then um uh trending trending hashtags so in, for social media platforms so new distribution networks you can say what are the k hashtags people have mentioned the most in the last x hours yeah, and then imagine how the flow of inf information, how many hashtags someone would have to to to, uh, to store. But if you post every hashtag, if you uh, pass every new post uh, and every new ha uh, hashtag through this um, top K heavy keeper, then the top K is going to actually store uh, uh, store and give you uh, the top K hashes hashtags that have appeared. No, okay. I think what what is important in this context is actually the observation that the all these all these hashing algorithms, or sorry, all these probabilistic data structures rather, are are scalable. 
um, because essentially what they just saw are hashes. So never mind whether you throw um, 10K values at them or a petabyte of data, um, the data and, and CPU cycle consumption is predictable to some extent. This is a property yeah. you, do not, you do not necessarily have with ordinary data structures. And the exactly. sets... And the sorted sets that Elena just mentioned are probably the the the, the uh, two primary examples here. And sorry, um, uh, sorted sets are, is, are are not not just the Redis internal data structure, but are, uh, is essentially a set that where each and every element has a score attached to it. Um, think of it like a um, leadership board or a recommendation list. It gives you a sequence of the elements in a set. Just for the few listeners who do not know what a sorted set is. Okay. So, sorry, uh, sorry go ahead, ask, Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, so does the, this one have an um, error rate attached to it as well? Uh, the top K? Yeah, hmm. yeah, it does. It's an estimation because there's also, with the top K, there's also a decay algorithm where it, uh, um, so the top K, it's not, it's not the top K since the, the, the top K was uh, instantiated. It's the heavy hitters in the last uh, whatever time, whatever. Uh, hmm. There is a decay algorithm. I, at the moment, I don't remember how exactly it was working. I would have to read my own uh, article <laughs> to remind <laughs> myself because it, it's been over half a year that I that I haven't checked. But the analogy that I had uh, for this is, uh, imagine, um, uh, uh, so they call it elephant flows with the, the heavy hitters. If you... Um, uh, if elephant, you have, did you say? Oh. Yeah, elephant, elephant flow, flow. okay. Um, so if you have um, uh, a field... And then you have uh, five elements, uh, five elephants, <laughs> elephants <laughs> passing through it, one behind the other. They're going to leave some trail. Yeah. Yes. But then you have uh, 10 uh, elephants uh, going in another way. They're going to leave another trail. And then maybe you have a whole herd that goes on, on an opposite dire direction. And then um, after they're gone, what you're going to see, the tracks that you're going to see in the field is mostly the one from the full herd. The ones from the five elements and ten uh, <laughs> elephants, sorry, the ones from the, the five elephants or ten elephants are going to be mostly deleted and they're not going to be visible anymore because of the the, the whole, the full herd uh, that passed there. So it's not that much time related as in uh, the um, volume, volume uh, uh, related. But then after a while, um, um, wind blows, we have, you have sandstorms or any kind of storms and even that uh, track of the whole herd starts to fade out and newer uh, tracks start to form. Top K um, can be visualized like that for the people who like to visualize things. And Elena, you mentioned that there are actually two types of um, PDSs called filters, namely the Bloom one and the Cuckoo one in Redis. Maybe one. you can, yeah. yes, maybe you can shed some light on the commonalities and the differences. Yeah, well, the cuckoo filters and uh, uh, they also check uh, uh, and they enable you to check if an element is present in a set. And also using a very small memory space, the fixed size, they sacrifice some precision for it. But uh, they are implemented completely uh, differently. Um, and uh, in, for some cases, they are um, uh, maybe faster for checking, but uh, not faster for adding elements in the filter. Um, uh, 
there are some particularity, but the, the big, the biggest one, the biggest difference here is that the cuckoo filter from, from a cuckoo filter, you can delete elements. You cannot delete elements from the bloom filter. So that is one big difference. The second mm. difference and maybe more subtle, um, is for, for cuckoo filters, you only get discrete, uh, error rates that you can set. So maybe 04 or 07, depending on the implementation, but for specifically for the implementation in the Redis Bloom modules, you can, um, you cannot choose any rate you want. You have a, a set of discrete, uh, error rates that you can choose from. Another thing is that, uh, even though it's maybe faster for some use cases, um, uh, if you have, if you repeat, it, it's going to fill up uh, faster if you add the same elements to it twice. So in Bloom filters, if you add the same element um, for a second, third, and time in the Bloom filter, the Bloom filter is not going to change. Nothing's going to change inside of it. With the Cuckoo filter, it will. And you're going to end up with that element twice or three times. Okay. I assume all the implementations of these of these modules are open sourced. Is it uh, available yeah. on GitHub? Uh, if they're not, I think they're a source available license, not open source, oh. uh, in the Redis Bloom uh, module. Uh, but the difference is there. I don't actually. I don't want to go into that discussion. Well, <laughs> with the most, with Ukraine. yeah. Mm, but uh, no, but, but I don't know if you've what, ever talked about the source available license. No, I, I, I haven't, and there's a reason for that. And this is not a licensing podcast, but rather, uh, well, full disclosure, actually, there will be an, an, an upcoming episode on open source licenses, summer time frame. So stay tuned, people, if you're, interest, if you're uh, interested in open source licenses or if you can't get to sleep at night, just a hint, just don't miss this podcast, uh, but not with this, uh, but this is not something that we will go into tonight. The main point is actually that all the source code is available on GitHub of these of this implementation. Whether yes. um, um, yeah. the use case, of course, it may, may be a different one, but if you want to take a look at a, at how it's done internally as an implemented, feel free. Yeah. And I think speaking of modules, uh, the main implementation language is still C, right? But I think there's one module implemented, I think, in Rust these days, and it's Redis, Redis JSON 2, if I'm not completely mistaken. Yes, I heard so. Okay. Yes, has, uh, this yeah. been, 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 has this been released now? Yes, it has. And okay. I think some people use it already in production. This is, of course, a shameless plus. For, uh, this is, of course, a shameless plug for Rust. <laughs> but let's not go there. Full disclosure, yes, there will be a podcast episode of the Linux in House on Rust. But this is now enough with the commercial breaks. Let's continue with the PDSs. <laughs> okay. Martin, any, any, uh, I wouldn't say final thoughts, but uh, any, any thoughts on, uh, any questions on, on, on PDSs? Well, I'd like to go back to, um, Helena's, uh, Helena's opening statement that there were four different types. Uh, have we covered all of them? Uh, we covered, we uh, gave an example for membership, cardinality, frequency. We didn't give any membership for similarity. Uh, I don't know any implementation personally. That's why I, I don't want to go there. But um, um, similarity in general, it, it can estimate how similar or different uh, two elements are in a set. Okay. So do, 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 are you uh, familiar with the roadmap for Redis Bloom, perhaps? 
if if uh, I mean it's been around for I don't know a couple of years at least um in its yeah, final current pretty, form. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think that one's pretty stable. I haven't seen any um any uh big developments in there. That well, was, full, uh, full disclosure, D-Wave got in touch with regards to quantum hashing uh, um, integration of this, but I'm not too sure what the, what the current status is. Um, better check with product management. Full disclosure, people, that was a joke. <laughs> quantum hashing. Cool. <laughs> uh, an active area of research, if I understand this correctly, uh, and Martin, beyond the GPU database field, I'm, I'm afraid... <laughs> Okay. Last question, Wesley, that I have, because this whole thing, although it sounds very theoretically minded in terms of the math behind all the rest of it, but Netflix and friends must be just the tip of the iceberg. I reckon from a practical use case perspective, the, the applications must be, must be a multitude of algorithms basically making use of this. I think so. I think so. And uh, I don't know if we can talk about what we've seen, what I've seen in, in Redis Labs, but uh, uh, there are people, we just we just touched today on a few use cases, but imagine um, a Google, let's say a Google sign-up form. Every time you try to create a new, new Google address, uh, it has to check if that uh, email already exists. There you have it, another use case for, for a Bloom filter. Has this email address been used already? Hmm. Um, or a dictionary. So is this word that I just wrote uh, uh, in the dictionary? Is it correctly spelled? And that was that was actually one of the primary use cases for for the Bloom filter. Which is quite understandable because, as we all know, languages can be complex beasts. Yeah. <laughs> even yeah. If, even our languages outside the programming languages realm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the correct spelling, at least, uh, at, at least a very basic um, way to to highlight a word that that doesn't exist in the dictionary. You can look at it like that. Mm. Mm, cool. Sounds like a very okay. good use case indeed. Any final thoughts before we go into the epoxies and the anti epoxies? Um, no, I, I just, uh, it, uh, about the probabilistic data structure fee, uh, realm. Um, once you, once you get to, to learn what they can do, you really kind of start to, to fall in love with them. You start to see applications everywhere and it's good. It's a very good tool to have, uh, in your developer, uh, tool belt. Um, by the way, Elena, where do you see this going? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about D waves now. I'm just talking about kind of from a, from an application perspective, from a, from a, maybe from a, even from an implementation perspective. Uh, this in terms of uh, of what of the uh, development of the Any, blue module. Anything goes. Uh, where the humanity is going, for example, to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. or whether the cartels will flip the coin <laughs> in terms of fraud detection you never know <laughs> no I'm joking Elena but, but if, if they had kind of visionary thoughts now is the time um, 
Well, if the direction is more and more uh, data and more and more real-time requirements, then uh, I think that we are going to see many more uh, new uh, algorithms uh, for probabilistic data structures. We're going to see new implementations that we haven't uh, thought possible um, and probably even more uh, uses uh, for, for the current uh, uh, algorithms and improvement. Even the Bloom filter algorithm has already been improved uh, multiple times. There are multiple uh, variants of it. I mean, this is the beauty about math, right? Similar to computer science, it never sleeps. Because <laughs> because people are basically just wondering what is wrong with the current set of things, take it apart, put it back together mm -hmm. again, and improve uh, it. Engineers. engineers. Funny enough, this is, very, this is the very core thought of something called open source, if I'm not completely mistaken. Uh, can we get some of those engineers on Jitsi, perhaps? <laughs> Jitsi, Jitsi, if you're listening, please get in touch. Hey, come on. It was, it was good. It worked well. Yeah, it didn't break down this time, yes. But you probably have to cut this out. <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, that has been a very fun episode. Of never, never mind missing math, but we don't want to bore our listenerships, uh, our listenership rather to death. So, uh, this was every, this is actually, this was actually very light on math. Needless to say, there is a complex mathematical, uh, foundation of this beyond hashes. Details, of course, are in the show notes. Probably a bit tricky to do on a podcast. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and with that thought, I think it's now, um, as as the tradition demands it, now's the time to go into the poxies. Um, Elena, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept. The poxies are the picks of the week. This acronym is actually trademarked by, Lin by Linux and Laws. So anybody trying to rip this off, your our lawyers will be in touch. <laughs> Jokes aside, um, anything goes, anything that crossed your mind worth mentioning, Elena, in terms of font remembering something that you really liked that has crossed your path in, say, a week or two or something, and then we take turns. It's what, uh, uh, can you can you say it again, Poxy? What is Poxy? Yes, a anything that you fancied, anything that, that came across positive. No, what what uh, ah positives of uh, okay yeah, I mean, we we normally we normally confine confine ourselves to movies <laughs> these <laughs> days <laughs> but anything goes can be a movie can no. be a tv series can be a music can be a book you name it hey you know what it was a sunset <laughs> i hadn't went out i i'm in portugal and we have been in lockdown for a while and uh crazy how this but after a few weeks of not going out for walks um in nature at all like uh, we finally went out for a walk in the sun and it was finally also a sunny day after many weeks of uh, rain mm. and uh it was weird i just felt that i sprung right back to life and i realized how much uh, the sun and and being out in nature makes a really big difference in our lives Certainly a valid park. Sorry, Martin. not technical at all. No, that's that's <laughs> fine. Any anything goes. As does a matter that, of does, fact, where... does that make rain your antipox? <laughs> <laughs> we cover that in a minute, Martin. Um, okay, full full disclosure. I had the very same experience today as Elena, because I took a literally an hour an an hour long break. Actually, done some cycling in Frankfurt. It was about fifteen degrees, but the sun was shining, and that was. In, in the current situation, um, Germany is still under lockdown. 
uh, yes, a welcome diversion. But over to you, Martin. I think, yeah, well, after after today, I think my box of the week is um, probably data structures because <laughs> it's there a while since, it's a while since <laughs> I used Redis, but um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful um, piece of um, I guess algorithm for most of these. Yeah. Okay. Enter boxes if there are any. I'm going okay. with rain, rain. I'm going with rain. <laughs> you, <laughs> great minds think alike because I was just about to say the weather forecast because the weather forecast <laughs> predicts actually return of winter come tomorrow for, for central Frankfurt where I'm living. So, oh, nice. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Elena, any, any, any thoughts on that or possibly enter, enter box? Um, hmm. puppies. <laughs> Sorry. Say, say again? Puppies. Puppies, everyone loves puppies. puppies. Okay, yeah. you probably you probably have to explain. Work. You probably have to explain why <laughs> the, 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 the flower, flowers or the dogs. Really... <laughs> uh, no, the, the dogs, the dogs, the, the, dogs, the baby okay. dogs, uh, puppies. Uh, I don't know if I want to explain exactly why it might be too much uh, information. You still have only one, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, we will probably leave it at that. <laughs> okay, guys, or rather, Elena, that has been really fun. Well, thank you very much for 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 joining this. Um, hope to have you back. More, more than welcome to. I hope we hope to have you back, or Olga, for that matter, <laughs> in an upcoming episode very soon. And really looking forward to it. Thank you, thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Alan. Thank you. This is. The Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret. To Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros. And finally, to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You'll find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs>